0: Welcome to Storytelling with Seth, a place where I honestly and as authentically as possible attempt to share with you stories I discover. Some of them are in the news, some of them are a bit of word of mouth or something whispered in the ear, and others are those rare opportunities where I get the chance to sit down with someone and talk to them about their story and in turn share it with you. I really hope you enjoy Every story here on Storytelling with Seth, but there's really only one way I can know, and that's if you let me know. If you're using the Anchor platform to listen to this, you can go ahead and leave me a voice message, and I'd be happy to share it on this podcast. However, you can also reach out to me through email at sethsingleton at gmail.com, as well as on various social media platforms like Instagram, where I'm Seth the Writer, Twitter, where I'm at one more singleton, or on Facebook, Seth Singleton Storyteller. Please feel free to reach out on the platform you feel the most comfortable with so that I can hear what you like, what you don't like, and more importantly, so that together we can share our stories with each other. And now that I've given you an idea of what this is and what to expect, the only thing now, or the only thing left to do now, is to tell a story. Let's get started, shall we? Sometimes I think that I have a plan for these episodes. I believe that I've found a certain mixture of stories that follow a theme, or work along an idea, or in many ways echo each other. And then there are other times when I look for stories that catch my attention and only after I've collected them can I see where the patterns emerge. This was the case with this episode, one that has come after a bit of a break, following uh, a busy summer, that I will admit through my scheduling off-kilter, and, well, forced me to focus on a few other things that at the time required all of my attention and prevented me from making my usual recordings. Given that break, I've decided that I'm going to go ahead and refer to this as my second season, and this would be episode one of that second season. I'd like to thank you for joining me uh, on this mixture of stories, which, interestingly enough, focus around the idea of a changing narrative. A narrative, at times, can feel so consistent that a false sense of security or expectation can develop. And it's usually in those moments that the narrative changes the most. In this collection of stories, we start with Carly Lloyd, US Women's National Team two-time Gold Cup winner, who makes a bit of a splash when she shows up for a Philadelphia Eagles practice and begins kicking field goals, first at 40 yards and then beyond the 50-yard mark. Where does she stop? At this point, who knows? But she did have her limits that day and pointed out that the only thing holding her back was practice and technique. And it's why she made the statement that she doesn't understand why such a video of her doing this would be so popular or become viral. And that it shouldn't be such a surprise that there are women who are capable of kicking National Football League professional football field goals. And that's something that we could start to see more often. I actually heard after recording this story that Carly Wood might even have a contract available, should she choose to consider it. But that's not the only changing narrative. In the cinematic world, there's no longer a Spider-Man, at least not one connected to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, after a disagreement between Disney and Sony, the future of Spider-Man, Tom Holland, and for many fans, the, the pieces of the MCU that he could've helped bring together By MCU, I mean Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm not that cool to just throw acronyms around like that. But with this change, the expectation that so many things would begin to happen within Marvel's movies are no longer something that can be planned for. In fact, those plans, whatever they might have been, whatever assumptions might have been made, have to change now. There's another narrative that's changing, and that's the one about the country where we live where recently the poem that became synonymous with the Statue of Liberty has been changed by the current White House administration. It no longer focuses on those who need help, but on those who will not be a burden. And this is a change to what I was taught in school, the values that I was raised with, and the identity that I believed was America's. That narrative has been changing, and based on this story, continues to change. And it's one that I believe will have other examples. I'm curious to see what they are and what it will mean when I get the chance to share them with you. And then on the comic book side, an interesting story about a writer named Jonathan Hickman, whose relaunch of the X-Men titles with House of X and Powers of X, have introduced an interesting question, which is why does he, along with the panels, the art and the dialogue, and even sometimes the descriptive language, also include pieces of design that are very text-heavy, text-enriched, and data-focused. The interesting thing about this is that Hickman believes and claims or maybe claims and believes, however you wish to structure that, that what he is doing is changing the way we read comics and also changing the way we perceive them not only as art and story but also as ways that we invest our time and this concept of time i i really find to interesting there's a few more stories in the mix but those are some highlights to get you looking forward to this episode season two episode one i'm still working on a name weekly rap has been a good one but i've seen other shows called the weekly others called the rap and at the moment I'm still working on the title. So for now, I'm just happy that you joined this broadcast, Storytelling with Seth. Thanks for being with me and for listening to these stories, which I wanted to share with you. And I'm hoping that your responses, your thoughts, your feelings are something you'll, well, share with me. Stay tuned to the very end for opportunities to see, learn, and know how to do that. But let's dive into our first story. According to an ESPN article, Carly Lloyd, U.S. Women's National Team World Cup winner, thinks it's insane that a recent video showing her making a 55-yard field goal is something that should be going viral. Lloyd was visiting the Philadelphia Eagles football team training and she decided to go ahead and demonstrate a little bit of her technique. Lloyd is a diehard Eagles fan And while she was there on Tuesday, during a joint practice with the Ravens, she knocked 40-yard field goals flawlessly. And then she decided to push it up by 15 yards. The 55-yarder that she tagged has become something of a viral sensation. And she recently told NBCSports.com that she had actually tried to go for 57. The distance was good, but it was wide. She also said that, she felt like she was holding them up by continuing her display, and they were there to practice. She was there as a fan to say hello and give her support while also taking advantage of the fact that they probably want to meet a World Cup winner. She then said that with a little bit of practice, working on the steps, the technique, and timing, it's something she believes she could do fairly regularly and efficiently. And she also thinks that there's no reason why any woman couldn't do that. Now, she noted that she has one of the most accurate shots in women's soccer, but the big thing would be getting used to the big boys out there, as she described it. The fact that they're so much larger is something she would have to take in consideration because there's nothing that scares her, and yet at the same time, that's the very thing that could get her injured if she's not taking into account their size and what that can do to anyone who's not of an equal size. Generally, kickers aren't male or female. So this would be something she'd have to think about. But she's a two-time FIFA Player of the Year and a two-time World Cup champion. At some point, there's a possibility she could see a new career direction in her future. If nothing else, she's clearly an inspiration to any young athlete who thinks that she would like to participate in football or be a kicker or test herself and see just how well she measures up against the competition, male or female. I love this as a story. I think this is one of those great moments when someone decides that they have the ability to exceed expectations, not only for themselves, but for the group of people they feel they represent. And in doing this, I really think that Carly has done an amazing thing, which is to continue to introduce an idea that men's and women's sports don't need to be as separated as they have been up until this point. Clearly with the introduction of more women in National Football League positions, whether it's coaching, announcing, training, and any other facets, that they are continuing to find opportunities to demonstrate their excellence and their ability to be an equal player is only going to lead to more opportunities for the games to look at how they're played and also to the advantages of gender fluidity when it comes to what those roles can mean in the regards to the team and also what it can mean for certain player positions. Because I think this is another great first step, one that continues in the tradition of great women athletes, great athletes overall, who find that way to use what they've done push a little bit further, and in doing so, challenge all of our expectations. If I'm going to read a story, I think it's about one where I'm not sure, or I've never seen someone do what the lead character claims they are or can, and watching them try and then succeed, that's always a story I'm going to come back to. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Now, on a separate subject, but following in the footsteps of a story about the U.S. Women's National Team and one of their star players, is the fact that I didn't get a chance to do a series or a single episode about the U.S. Women's National Team and the U.S. Women's World Cup. While I can admit that there was a little bit of scheduling difficulty with some work opportunities that came up and some projects that I was invested in, there also wasn't the same thrill of possibility for me because I had already assumed maybe rightfully, maybe wrongfully so, that the U.S. women's national team would already win the World Cup based on everything I'd seen from them so far. I did get the chance to catch a couple of games. I squeezed in one or two. I really thought that the Thailand game was a difficult situation for them to be in because as a team, they need to press forward. They need to work on play combinations. They need to strike towards the goal or they're just playing around and they're not using momentum and opportunity to their advantage, which is something that they need to keep when they're trying to move up through their group and into the upper levels. I overall thought that the rest of their games were very impressive. I thought Spain was one of the most challenging, physical, and difficult. I also felt that the championship game was really a challenge because both teams had such an amazing story. But in the end, the ability to see the U.S. women's national team not only take on all the challenges that were coming their way, whether they were on the field, whether they were personal, whether they were political, as uh, soon came out between Donald Trump and Megan Rapinoe. And this was something that I think, given her outspoken nature and the platform that she has established for herself as a player and as a person, was something that could have been anticipated. But I thought overall it was handled well. It was, for the most part, kept on the field. I do feel that the longer politics and sports or politics and other facets of life continue to blend and blur, there's going to be conflict. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be pretty. Sometimes it's not going to feel healthy. But it is something that as long as it's continuing to, I guess, exist, or as long as it's continuing to be a part of the things that we include in sports or in politics, that is something we're going to have to, or it's something that we can continue to expect and something we can continue to consider, both as a positive and negative, or simply as a byproduct of the times we live in, the evolution of what were once clear lines between different worlds, and finally, what it means for us as we move towards the narrative that we're all creating day by day, decade by decade, generation by generation. Tying a loose thread to the Carly Lloyd story that included Megan Rapinoe, which allows me to then reference the US Women's National Team, which then allows me to mention the current White House administration. And this story from NBCnews.com which was published on the 16th and refers to an event that occurred a few days before that, when the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Director, Ken Cuccinelli, chose to revise the classic foundational poem by Emma Lazarus that's featured on the Statue of Liberty. The original poem reads, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to be free. Give me your tired, your poor your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. Instead, Cuccinelli changed the state to say, give me your tired and your poor, who can stand on their own two feet and will not become a public charge. This was his statement in regards to a policy to deny green cards to legal immigrants who use government benefits. It then also connected this event to the previous announcement that two members of the U.S. Senate, would not be allowed to make a visit to Israel. And that in both instances, this was the turning point for two countries, who at one time were comprised of peoples seeking refuge, seeking a new place, establishing it. In many ways, thanks to the assistance of others, in other ways because of their own resilience, who both countries have now decided that they can no longer extend that same offer of refuge, assistance, or protection. And that while this had been a story that many Americans might have been familiar with growing up, it's one that I had always heard when I was a child and believed to be, I thought, one of the defining characteristics of the country where I live. It would appear that that would be incorrect now and that if it had been correct before, it's now, as I said, incorrect, but it's also uh, now correct only. That we take those who can help us or who are not a financial burden drain or some other negative effect. This is intriguing because it is something similar that can occur in people as well. There are many who, at a point, maybe even at the beginning points of their life, will involve themselves with organizations that provide charity and assistance, or find that even if they can't participate in those groups, that they can provide assistance to them. But that over time, mistreatment, A desire to hold on to the money that was once given, or the time, or the aid, or other factors can come into play. And when they do, what had once been a helping hand is now a closed hand. This is a change for the narrative, not only for the people who grew up here, but for those generations that will grow up after me and anyone younger than me, who is of childbearing age and raising them and allowing them to participate in public education where this policy will soon become commonplace. And when it does, there will be a distinction between the generations that came before this time and generations that come after. The generations before will extend an open hand and offer help and assistance, no matter what the financial obligation or cost might be. And I believe that based on this, the expectation for generations afterwards will be to only allow in those who don't cost too much, don't create too much of a financial drain, or in any way, don't become a problem however that may be tightly or loosely defined. It'll be interesting to come back to this point if I'm lucky enough to go far enough into the future and see just what the effect this change brings about and to look back on this moment and see just how close, how right, how barely glimpsing the understanding or how over-exaggerated this story might end up being. Time will tell, as will our story. And now we're gonna take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. In another story about change is the recent announcement that Marvel and Sony will no longer be partnering to produce upcoming Spider-Man movies. This was a blow to many fans who felt that Spider-Man had finally come back to... Marvel in at least the form that Tom Holland had presented in Captain America Civil War and later Avengers Infinity War, to spider Spider-Man movies, Avengers Endgame. This partnership brought about a change following the portrayals by Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. And the introduction of Holland had been seen by many as a partnership that allowed fans to experience Spider-Man as part of the many popular Marvel stories that they desire to see on the big screen. And also provided Sony with an opportunity to still profit from its rights without infringing on the ability for Spider-Man to appear in Marvel properties. There's been a lot of money that has changed hands since this agreement was made. And most recently, Spider-Man's Far From Home was one of the more successful films of the past year, if not perhaps the past five years, especially for a solo film about a solo superhero. And because of that, renegotiations for the upcoming projects came to a head when both sides desired more financial involvement and... An impasse was reached, and when that happened, the announcement was made that Spider Man will no longer be appearing in any MCU events or projects, and that he will be solely a member of the Sony universe. Fans around the world have been shocked and amazed. There's been a Save Spider Man campaign hashtag launched. And yet there's also been pushback. Uh, There's an article in Inverse by uh, Eric Francisco that claims that Marvel's Spider-Man was an imposter. The the list of reasons includes things like never including Uncle Ben in any of the storylines, recognizing the fact that numerous Spider-Man films had existed before this, and that those were no association to Marvel, and that they also weren't in any way something that Marvel fans could really connect to because of the way that they had been separated from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then even now, when they had Spider-Man, the Spider-Man they had in Francisco Eric Francisco's story suggests that what they had was a cheap copy, poor imitation, not something that would actually pass the muster of Spider-Man. Now, I don't know if you can hear the unimpressed or... Hardly disturbed snores of my French bulldog Bruno, but from what I can tell, he doesn't take too much stock either in this story or in what the impact could mean. And in many ways, I believe he echoes the reaction of Eric Francisco that while this was, while this had been a really fun moment in cinema for a lot of Marvels, it wasn't actually an authentic experience, and because of that. He believes that Tom Holland might actually be able to emerge from the shadow of Tony Stark, someone who he felt Spider-Man in the MCU was working too hard to emulate, and even criticizes scenes like the building of a new suit aboard Tony Stark's private plane and building it with an arsenal of weapons. The Peter Parker that Eric Francisco knew was poor, always, always getting by stitching his suit together, patching it, sewing, sometimes poorly, and for the most part, always doing his best just to get by. Interestingly, though, despite Eric Francisco's hope that Tom Holland's Peter Parker can emerge from Stark's shadow, he also points out that whether or not this is accomplished or comes to pass for Eric Francisco, the damage has already been done. And as he says at the end of his article, this gentrified version of spider-man is ruined it's time to start over now i found that interesting because among the comic book fans that get the chance to write with over at dc comics news at least one if not more than one has suggested that really the only way forward for sony would be a reboot at this point point. and that should marvel choose to continue with a spider-man character of any kind should a future negotiation work out that they would have to do the same and that this could be bringing a close to the career of Tom Holland, or at least Tom Holland's career as Spider-Man. Interesting development that covers a lot of different aspects, but in many ways only touches on what this story means for a lot of comic book fans, Marvel cinema fans, and fans of young actors striving to make a name for themselves and doing so while playing iconic characters. The interesting thing is my little French bulldog Bruno has definitely gotten more awakened. He almost tried to pull the cord out of my headphones. But even after quick little spurts of interest or excitement, he falls back into the same lulling snore that he was enjoying previously. It's things like that that make me think that we will move on. We will probably remember the interruption less and less with time, like any challenging event, shocking, difficult, have fans might be taking this. But for the most part, this is one of those developments that I don't think anyone saw coming, that so many good things had already occurred. And because of that, I believe that what was experienced next was more the shock of the event and the way that it so clearly blindsided everyone. There had been no rumors or even hints that something like this could happen. And when the announcement was made, suddenly in a way that felt like it had been sort of dropped from the sky. Fans reacted with that degree of shock, amazement, disappointment, disbelief. And I think it's going to resonate for quite some time. It's curious to wonder, or it's curious to consider. For me, it's a curiosity about the idea that something like this can resonate. And how long do people hold on to anger? It's often been said a moment that occurs will never be forgotten by the person who was harmed, offended, damaged by it. And only they can really say just how long this will last. But if there has been an echoing sentiment that I have heard, it has been that those fans who felt that the blame lies with Sony say that they'll show their displeasure with Sony in the future. And they'll do it in a way to make sure that Sony understands just how disappointed they are. Whether or not that's the right place to place the blame, considering that details that have emerged suggest both sides were looking for greater financial reward on top of what they had already made. It'll be an interesting thing to come back to should fans hold to their word. And there is a demonstrable action taken. I can't imagine yet what it might be, what the most effective way that could be used to that message across. But if it does happen, I'm looking back, as with the last story, at the idea that this will be a moment when, well, time will show whether or not it really has the degree of importance that it feels now. Or maybe it's just a blip that, that got people riled up for just a short period of time. Much like my little French bulldog Bruno, who has now fallen back onto the couch and is snoring peacefully and contentedly. I'm not sure that that will be the outcome for fans. But how long this will actually last is the one thing that I find the most interesting. And just like I'm never sure how long Bruno is going to be worked up about something... I don't think Sony can anticipate, let alone predict, how this news is affecting fans and when or how they will respond, which means we have a story to look forward to. Now this next story does deal with the Marvel Universe, and since we just talked about Spider-Man, it seems like this would be a comfortable segue. I hope you'll have to let me know. What I want to talk about next, though, is not only the renewed interest in the X-Men titles, certainly with their newest launches of House of X and Powers of X, but also the response that has been building to Jonathan Hickman's writing of these issues and his use of what's considered to be a different form of narrative. His collaboration with graphic designer Tom Muller has led to the creation of dense sections of charts and text files, lots of biographical, informational data. And in an article from Comic Book, the question asked, why does a Marvel comic storyline, with so many fantastical sci-fi concepts, need a scientific textbook's worth of supporting data? It's kind of a long-winded question, but I think it does point to a very important idea, which is comics... Comic books have always been defined by very basic forms of narrative. And yet, in this story, what appears to be evident, not only from this article, but from my own experiences reading those titles, and I've really enjoyed them, and I've really enjoyed the text and narrative chunks, these, uh, as described by Mm -hmm. the graphic designer, dense sections of charts and text files to accompany the story. Now, Hickman's response to this is that From the very beginning, he's always played with the idea of what is and isn't narrative. If narrative is all art and words, then graphic design is a part of that as well. And then he went on to explain that graphic design elements are key in controlling pacing of the storyline, which is where this story really sort of pulled me in. Because his next comment is that the reason why he likes it is because it changes the way you read it especially in terms of how long it takes you to read a page. Now, this is something that's interesting because in SEO writing, in blog writing, more often than not, there's a goal for how long it should take someone to read a blog and what's considered the desirable goal amount. Everyone's got their reasons. Everyone's got their arguments. But what I'm intrigued by here is how that same question and process is being applied to the comic books that Jonathan Hickman is writing. I like the way that he goes deeper into saying that it's important because people consume so much pop culture nowadays that there's less of an attention span that's being cultivated and created and developed. Now that that's all changed, he wants to make an impact in his storytelling by focusing on the pacing of the story. More than just actual comic book panels, which are the common device for breaking down pacing, the charts according to Hickman, are causing readers to spend time doing careful study of finer details and, as it's described in some situations, causing readers to go back and reread sections of the comic to get a better understanding. These Dawn of X books, as they're being called, are not only redefining what has been the history of the X-Men up until this point, but they've also been part of a goal that Hickman has claimed is his ultimate end goal, to maintain a certain velocity in comics, to prevent it from becoming too homogenized. A book that's 20 pages doesn't have to have the same cadences that have come before that you can create an understanding of how time is read and how you read time by breaking this up (laughs) and by doing this he says that he avoids the question of you know are books cool or at least that's his thinking behind it that it allows him to cheat narratively and that he can do more cinematically if he's not robbing the reader of information in these interim pages i also love this last little bit he says i don't want somebody to spend four dollars and be done with the book in five minutes. Inviting the reader to engage with the page for longer than just that five minutes sounds like a really intelligent approach to defining the narrative of your story and the narrative you wanna create in comic books. I would like to think at some point I can be that thoughtful and aware of my craft. And if it's something you've already been doing, That's something I'd love to hear about. I hope this is a story that encourages you to reach out and connect, and if not with me, then with other writers and artists, because one of the things that is is a great thing to consider is a new way to approach a story, and I love the idea of time and pacing as an application. Now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. This next story is one that focuses on how sometimes the stories that we believe are important to tell, the narratives that we wish to change among the public conscious, are not always well-received, and sometimes they're rejected. Art Spiegelman is the author of Maus, a graphic novel that was the first to win the Pulitzer Prize. He was asked to write an essay for the Folio Society's Marvel Collection, The Golden Age from 1939 to 1949. When his essay included a dig at current President Donald J. Trump, he was asked to remove it. Now this article is something that I read in CBR.com, and it's in reference to an article that first appeared in The Guardian. Spiegelman had been approached to write the introduction for this segment of Marvel's The Golden Age, and the focus of his essay had been to examine how Jewish creators of the time used superheroes to talk about political issues. At the conclusion of this essay, Spiegelman wrote, in today's all too real world, Captain America's most nefarious villain, the Red Skull, is alive on screen, and an orange skull haunts America. The Folio Society responded and told Spiegelman that Marvel Comics wanted to stay apolitical and is not allowing its publications To take a political stance. Spiegelman then pointed out that he doesn't believe that he's someone who's nearly as political as some of his travelers, but that when he was asked to kill this reference to an orange skull, he realized that maybe he'd been a bit irresponsible in being playful with the the dire existential threat we now live with. He then points out that, in his words, international fascism again looms large, and the dislocations that have followed the global economic meltdown of 2008 helped bring us to a point where the planet itself seems likely to melt down. Armageddon seems somehow plausible, and we're all turned into helpless children, scared of forces grander than we can imagine, looking for respite and answers in superheroes flying across screens in our chapel of dreams. He then mentioned that Marvel Entertainment Chairman Ike Perlmutter has a close relationship with President Donald Trump, is a longtime friend, unofficial, and influential advisor, a member of the president's elite Mar-a-Lago club, and that Perlmutter and his wife have each recently donated 360000 which is the maximum allowed, to, as he calls it, the Orange Skulls Trump Victory Joint Fundraising Committee for 2020. As of now, Marvel Comics and Folio Society have not responded to requests from The Guardian regarding this story or made any public statements of any kind. For a quick reminder about the history of Spiegelman, his story, *Maus* originally appeared in Raw Magazine, and it told the story of his father, Art Spiegelman, Vladek, and his experiences in the Holocaust. The book is famous for using mice to represent Jewish people and cats for Germans. And it won the Pulitzer Prize in 1992. I believe that there will always be a challenge when art attempts to speak truth to power. And that because of that, there will always be difficulty for those artists who, knowing this, continue to speak truth. The resistance, while public and difficult, is something that can maintain its course as long as as the environment remains civil. Right now, I'm thankful that Spiegelman was given the opportunity to speak his truth, tell his story, and then retain the right to remove that story when it was not allowed to be published without heavy censorship and editing. Does this mean we stop changing the narrative of things that Have for too long been allowed to be inconsistent or untruthful? From what I'm hearing and seeing from Art Spiegelman, the answer is no. Now this one is just a funny little thing I'm going to throw in at the end about how the more things change, the more they stay the same. There is a history in DC and Marvel comics of creating parody versions of popular characters from the other books universe whether it's a version of Superman or Batman appearing in Marvel Comics or a version of Captain America, Thor, or other characters appearing in DC. This was uh, recently given a new index for a long-standing tradition between the two companies when Marvel Comics released its Marvel Comics number 1000. The issue features a cameo, at least an appearance of, Or maybe a nod towards? Depends on your interpretation of what a hand and the cow of Batman really mean. The issue celebrates Deadpool getting his first ongoing series. And in a story titled Turkey Soup for the Deadpool Soul, Deadpool is trying to create uplifting, cheer-up stories. Part of his plan is to make off with a bat boat, that looks very similar to the one that appeared in the movie Batman Forever. The figure, who has a cowl and gloved hand, very reminiscent of the Dark Knight, calls out, Hey! Hey! But Deadpool is roaring away with his only salutation, Uplift accomplished, and a... These unofficial crossovers have occurred for years, versions of the Avengers have appeared in DC Comics, versions of DC Comics characters have appeared in Marvel, and other comic companies along the way have taken their fair share of shots. This one just made me smile, because it points to a recognition that many fans have suggested, which is that DC Comics and Marvel Comics are generally their most successful when they collaborate together. It's their crossovers that have led to some of their biggest financial gains. And while it can be fun when one's taking a shot at the other, both groups, both companies have come to recognize that their only hope at continued success is the future success of their competitor. Here's to the parody. Here's to keeping things light. Here's to a fun rivalry, one that doesn't require the meanness that previous examples have sometimes demonstrated. I really enjoyed this issue of changing narratives, and this was a great point to end on. Thanks for joining with me. Look forward to meeting with you next time, and sharing all the stories I find that catch my interest, and that I hope you enjoy me sharing with you as your storyteller. This has been Storytelling with Seth. See you next time. You've been listening to Storytelling with Seth. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. To contact me about any of these stories or a story you would like to see or hear on Storytelling with Seth, email me at sethsingleton at gmail.com. That's my full name with no spaces or punctuation. S-E-T-H-S-I-N-G-L-E-T-O-N at gmail.com. You can always reach out to me on other social media platforms, Instagram, where I'm Seth the Writer, Twitter, where I'm one more singleton, or any other platform you choose. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this episode, rate and review, so I can know your thoughts and what you think about the episode. And then, tell a friend. Until next time this has been Storytelling with Seth.